Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Scott Noteboom is on deck for I Love Data Center's podcast, episode 11. Scott is a high school dropout turned IT success story. He worked his way through the ranks, starting an ISP in the Bay Area, uh, eventually joined AboveNet as a operations head of operations and engineering for their data centers, uh, moved on to Yahoo, where I realized as I was talking to him <laughs> is where, where I originally met Scott uh, as he was speaking to the chicken coop design uh, that the Yahoo data centers have followed over the years and then moved on to Apple and recently has started a company focused around artificial intelligence. So we have a fun conversation around how he got to where he's at today, as well as the implications of artificial intelligence within the data center industry. So without further ado, here is the interview with Scott Noteboom. Mr. Scott Noteboom, thank you so much for joining the I Love Data Centers podcast. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I greatly appreciate you reaching out after uh, seeing seeing the, the mention of the podcast on LinkedIn and uh, the brief conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago. I think that this is going to be very fruitful and beneficial for our audience, digging into your background and how you've evolved through the the ecosystem of, of the data center marketplace into what you're doing today. But for those listeners who who haven't read the the brief bio that's going to be up on the website, could you give just a real quick overview of, of who you are and, and what you're doing these days? Yeah, so I started my career kind of as a kid in the technology space. So I started in software, spent some good years doing that. And then right around 2000, got into the infrastructure space when I came to work for AboveNet, which at the time was a big data center company. So, you know, kind of a interesting learning exercise over the years of seeing, you know, the, mainly the differences and then trying to build some commonalities between kind of the core technology space and the data center, particularly infrastructure space. Uh, and then I've transitioned kind of back into software from my experience in infrastructure, working in AI that's very applicable towards uh, physical spaces, including infrastructure. Where are you located right now? Are you in the Bay Area? Yeah, totally. So I'm looking outside the window here, and we're in downtown San Jose, which is also where I live. So it's, uh, I'd say, the part of the Silicon Valley where space is uh, 
it's funny and it's almost laughable to say affordable compared to the rest of the world. But uh, yeah, this, the South Bay. So most startups tend to go in San Francisco. We're giving it a shot in San Jose. Yeah, I, I hear you, man. I, so when I moved from the Bay Area to Raleigh in January of last year, I remember of 2015 or January of 2016, I was having a conversation with the economic development manager for the city of, of Raleigh. And he was like, well, you know, pricing downtown Raleigh is pretty expensive. It can get anywhere from, you know, 2 to $3 a square foot. And I just started laughing like uncontrollably because I was like, you have no idea what pricing is for commercial office space downtown in San Jose or Santa Clara or Palo Alto or San Francisco these days. No, man, it's crazy. So, you know, to put it in perspective, we're, we're a little bit more expensive than Raleigh. And then you get up to the city or, you know, you get in to like downtown Palo Alto and it's 3x that. So, you know, the joy and the pain of uh, being in the Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah. So were you born and raised in the Bay Area? No. Um, so I actually moved to the Bay Area in 2000. I was born and raised until about 10 years old in Michigan. So my family was long in the automobile industry. And then as that kind of fell apart right around 1980, my dad switched careers and got into aerospace, which brought us to Southern California. And then I moved up to the Bay Area, which is now my favorite part of California, um, in 2000. So you did you get into the aerospace industry, or was that just something that your dad did? Oh no, that was that was just my dad, and uh, yeah, I had uh, you know since I was a kid in Southern California, I always heard him complain about the bureaucracies of you know working in big government related things like space. So he was uh, he ended up being the lead manufacturing engineer for the space shuttle main engine. So I would say, you know, I'm a kid who grew up, uh, you know, surrounded by aerospace and having to deal with the trauma of the space shuttle accidents and all that kind of fun stuff. You know, so I guess as a kid, you get fascinated by the astronaut thing. But because I was playing with technology pretty early on, um, I was more attracted to computers than space. So what, what was the earliest computer that you had back in the day? Ah, so, you know, and it, it all fits into the move. So, you know, I remember, so I was, it was towards the end of fifth grade. So I was something like 10 years old and, you know, probably the most impactful thing of moving from Michigan to California, because it was so culturally different is, you know, different is I remember, you know, being packed into the moving van and everybody crying, leaving all your family to, you know, go to some crazy place where you don't know anybody. And, you know, when I got to that place, it was, you know, in a uh, different world. You know, I remember the first day in school, they were having burritos. And not only didn't I know what a burrito was, I didn't even know how to pronounce burrito. And, you know, so when you get into that scenario, I'm a, you know, kind of a socially awkward, geeky kid who didn't have any friends. So what became my first friend was uh, computers. So I had volunteered, uh, this would be the summer between fifth and sixth grade, in one of the first public computing labs. It was in a library and it was on Apple II. So I got completely obsessed with that. And then by the kind of first Christmas following, my parents got me an Apple II and that was that. So from a timeline perspective, what, what years are we talking about? Oh, so this was, so I was born in 71. So this would be right around 1980, 1981. Gotcha. Yeah, so yes, it was like right when the Apple II came out um, is kind of when I got into this stuff. Or maybe it was the Apple II Plus, if I remember. So how how did your uh, education in technology kind of play out? Did you end up going to college and made it majoring in operations, information management, or, or something similar? No, not at all. I mean, being involved in this tech stuff was kind of a, a blessing and a curse at the same time. So. 
you know, at at that time there wasn't a lot of people into computers, and I was really obsessed with computers and was you know coding on that you know both on the Apple II and then you know when the IBM PC came out, you know both of those platforms. So when I was really young, I was able to make a little bit of money programming things for for people, and you know definitely uh, by the time college came around, I, I was too busy. Uh, I don't know, too busy doing work and thinking I didn't need college. No, so I uh, was a high school dropout. So I ended up dropping out of high school and was, you know, doing some tech things, running a bulletin board on the side, programming a little bit of software for, you know, doctors. I worked for an optometrist and kind of set up some early programming so they could use computers for, you know, patient billing and records management and things like that. So uh, and then went back and uh, my alma mater, I joke and people think I joke around is when I say that my, uh, you know, I got my degree at uh, La Puente Adult School in Southern California. That That's actually a true story. Wow. So no, I didn't go the, I didn't go the the traditional education route. And, you know, the funnest story about that one is, 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 you know, some years later when I was at Yahoo and we were doing some cool things with this kind of chicken coop data center cooling technology, I was invited to speak to some graduate students um, at a couple universities. So on one trip, I went to Georgia Tech, who had brilliant uh, mechanical engineering students, and I also spoke to a graduate class at MIT. And I remember being in MIT and uh, you know, they had the lectern with, you know, kind of the different levels of students uh, in the class. And uh, I remember, you know, I was at a point there where I was doing pretty big speaking engagements. So I, you know, I wasn't really getting nervous. And then I realized, holy crap, I'm completely nervous because I've never been in this environment. And it's like a classic MIT kind of thing. And so, you know, I went up there when you're nervous, you got kind of a shaky voice. I, I was in a pretty screwed position. And uh, how did I get out of it? I just went up there and told the story saying, you know what, you guys have made me completely nervous because this is the first time I've been in a college classroom. And here I am talking to the smartest people in the world at MIT. And uh, so I told them the La Puente adult school kind of story and they laughed and then everything was cool and I was relaxed and, and did my thing. So uh, you know, there's some you know positives what's... and negatives that go along with that, my path. It just it just dawned on me that I've I've seen you before and met you in the Bay Area at one of the twenty four by seven events when you were yeah. specifically presenting on the uh, chicken coop design at Yahoo. Nice, that's that's really cool. It, it's funny because uh, that you know that whole thing has been a little bit a while now, and uh, it was just over the weekend that I noticed an article somebody sent me where. Yahoo is, uh, or I don't know what it is, what, what remains of Yahoo is trying to sell off the patent portfolio on that. And I was you know, a little bit bummed because I'm all, you know what, this, you know, these kind of efforts that save energy and make the environment cleaner, you know, shouldn't that be open source so everybody can kind of take advantage of that kind of stuff versus, you know, trying to hold it patent hostage. But yeah, different different opinion, I suppose. So so hold on. That's it's that's actually a fascinating topic because that was the first time that I learned that data center companies were actually applying for patents that had to do with how they were going about cooling and delivering power to to the data center. Can you kind of speak to what that world looked like within Yahoo or just what, you know, what you remember about it and then how that shaped out, um, you know, from, from your experience? 
Well, I would say that we, you know, what's really interesting to, to kind of go through the entire timeline there is when we started to develop that kind of stuff, it was uh, a risky time to be diving into energy savings and you know, uh, we started to stretch the ASHRAE rules or, quite frankly, break the ASHRAE rules in regards to environment we're running in data center. And it's funny, uh, you know, one of the things we were talking about is, is you know, what's a meaningful, you know, quote somebody gave you? And it was one of the early leaders at Yahoo. We had actually had, uh, when I was working on kind of energy efficient stuff, uh, we had somebody call into the Yahoo, frankly, the CEO's office and explain that, you know, Scott's doing some things that are breaking, you know, standard rules of data centers. And by the way, this could put Yahoo at risk. And one of the one of my favorite quotes that I learned at that time is, is, you know, so Scott, you're, uh, you know, you're potentially putting downtime at risk. And I thought, well, you know, I think we're going to be fine, you know, to save energy. And, you know, why are you doing this? Because uptime is what counts. And, uh, the, the quote I learned at that time was, is, uh, do you know what happens to heroes? And I said, I, I don't know. And they said, heroes die. Um, so I, you know, I guess the long story short is, is, is when you were early on in the energy innovation or the kind of the low PUE game, um, that wasn't popular at the CEO levels of companies like this because change in the data center presents increased likelihood of risk. Increased increased likelihood of risk is is increased likelihood of potential downtime, and how much things changed is is you know when I went to uh, Apple, you know, up to the CEO level, the most important thing at that time was is you know, hey, we need to be using renewable energy and being, you know, doing good things for the environment. So it's kind of fun to see within a period of a couple of years how much things change. Uh, but specific to, you know, to the patent, which I, which I think was your the the intent of your question, is uh, yeah. So it was, you know, I think in most technologies, what you find is is building a strong patent portfolio. You know, definitely gives advantage. And I would say that, you know, I was really excited and still excited about that space. But then it's, what, what do you do with those patents? Like in, in Yahoo's particular case, we had received a $10 million grant from the government, which you have mixed feelings on because, well, why does the government need to do this? And, you know, do we really need it? Uh, and the interest of that, of that kind of grant is to, uh, you know, build something that effectively makes the country better. And, uh, you know, that's, that's why I particularly think that those kind of things should be held open source. Uh, you know, give a, a good shout out to, to the open compute initiative because, you know, that's the charter that that kind of represents, which I think is really awesome. So as, as I walk through the hundreds of different data centers that I've walked through, I've always kind of had that sitting in the back of my head wondering, are there specific patents that companies, data center owner operators, um, are infringing on, or in some way, um, you know, not paying, paying, paying to to leverage um, for certain deployments or certain design build deployments? Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, if there was any effort specifically done by Yahoo to kind of look into other people's data center design and builds to see if there was any patent infringement going on. 
So, so, you know, I think that that wasn't Yahoo's objective, which I think is awesome. That shouldn't be Yahoo's objective. But, you know, the worry is, is when some of these patents come to, you know, come up for sale is, is, you know, realistically, and, you know, one of the best things of not really being directly in the data center industry nowadays is, is I get, I get to walk through a bunch of data centers of competitors that I could never have gone, you know, through before when, you know, say, for example, I was at Apple. And really what you learn is, is, and it's no surprise and all of us know this, we all learn from each other. And in particular, a lot of lessons that we learn get transferred between us because we all use very similar vendors and contractors who help us in our work. And effectively, while we may not share as much as we like, I think we share more than we think through those efforts. And I think it, it, it makes everything better. You know, so while there hasn't been, you know, a broad, you know, open, kind of open source community for, for most of the years through data centers, I think, you know, lessons have been shared and learned between all of them. And, you know, the worry when you get into patents, and I think all tech companies have their patents, you know, including in the data center space, but you worry that, wow, some of the stuff we patent is pretty broad. And, you know, what happens if a patent troll buys this? You know, it's not going to be a company like Yahoo that's going to go try to make money, you know, you know, in lawsuits off of patents. It's going to be a, a, a potential troll who buys the patent and then, you know, tries to extort money by, you know, connecting the dots of any particular thing that these broad patents cover that other companies may be doing. So that's kind of the worry where it gets ugly. I, you don't worry about about it from the the big company space. I don't think we've seen problems there. Yeah. I know that uh, Rob Roy and SwitchNap like to tout the patents that they've developed in the industry around their, their design and their build. And I wonder if he's ever going to uh, try to enforce his patents and, and have his own trolls going around the industry. Um, that's a conversation for probably another time. So l- let me ask you this. Uh, what what was the first data center that you remember ever walking walking into? Oh, so the first data center I remember walking into was when I got into the internet space. Uh, so my first business was an internet service provider. So it started as a bulletin board service that I ran out of my parents' house as a kid. And then as you start to grow up, um, boy, growing up means then you start getting ISDN lines or a T1 line into your own place. And then you continue to grow. And I, I think the first data center that I walked into was a telecom data center because I started to co-locate uh, basically ISP head-end gear. Um, boy, it could have been an early California CLEC like uh, GST Telecom, which I don't think exists anymore. But I think that would be considered what nowadays would be seen as a pop location. Um, but, you know, at the time they called it a data center and I thought it was a data center and I walked into it and, it, you know, that probably was my first exposure. And what, Aside from what, makeshift, create your own data center in your own closet kind of stuff. Exactly. What, what, do you remember what your experiences or your experience was like when you walked into that facility? Was it pretty ah. much a non-event for you or, or was it uh, kind of mind-blowing? It was, it was, and it's funny for a guy who went in and worked in the data center industry, I would say it wasn't particularly mind blowing. Um, and I suppose what stood out was, uh, the amount of equipment and blinking lights and how loud it was. Uh, you know, that, that was kind of my first experience into the data center, but I, uh, yeah, I think that was a little bit overshadowed because if I remember what drove me in the data center is the ISP was growing so rapidly that we couldn't keep up with, uh, effective modem banks and our, 
you know, our modems were breaking and we were going to more commercial gear. So my first exposure in the data center was a pretty urgent uh, task that we had to do where we had to do kind of an overnight install. So maybe I didn't have that much time to even look around or pay attention because I was focused on getting gear online. But you know, that was first impression. So what, what got you into working for an ISP? Did you... It, did you found that yourself? And if you did, like, at what point did that light bulb go off where you thought to yourself, I need to, I need to get into this and jump into this? Yeah, and it's funny. And, and it's, I was just talking to a friend and there's some correlations between, you know, lessons you learn in the ISP space to, you know, same thing in the AI space. So I would say I got into the bulletin board space because I was a tech geek. Um, and, you know, definitely in the bulletin board space, you could see, you know, communication with people in a faraway places. Uh, as far away, I, I didn't really know because it was really hacker related, I suppose. We were we were talking about how to, you know, crack Apple, you know, Apple II software and be able to trade games and, you know, exchange messages and exchange tips. So, you know, I could definitely, from a usability perspective, see that in the bulletin board space. And then as bulletin boards became more IP based, uh, as did you know, the work I was doing. So the transition from bulletin board to ISP just kind of naturally came as the technology was progressing. The, the part that was most impactful to me in the ISP space was, is when you started to get non-tech geeks online, uh, which we started to do. And by the way, when you would do that, we would have to go into people's houses and manually set up their computers to go online, you know, whether it was, you know, Trumpet Windsocks and Windows 3.0 or whatever it was, or early kind of TCP IP settings on the Mac. Uh, there, there wasn't any self-install at the time. And so, you know, not only would we have to go into, you know, somebody's house, set up their computer, but also show them how to go online and, you know, take them through Netscape and, you know, take them to Yahoo's homepage and everything. And the the part that really turned on the light bulb was the excitement of what people could do with this approach versus just the technology that enabled it. And, you know, the same thing applies in the AI space. You get so wrapped around the axle of the technology that it isn't until you really pay close attention to what you do with the technology that really makes a difference and pretty similar in the ISP space. So let's, let's um, try to do some fast forwarding through the career that you had that spanned the better part of 13 years look like working for different data center owner operators um, above net, which you mentioned Yahoo, which you mentioned Apple, which you mentioned, you know, maybe just a quick highlight or two of, of the things that you experienced and learned as you were running operations and engineering uh, on the data center side for, for those big big firms. Yeah. So you asked me about my first kind of exposure to data center and it really was like most exposure to, to the above net customers of, you know, I need this data center. This is where my servers go. And I was more focused on, uh, on getting the software working than the interoperations of the data center. So I would say my first real exposure, we actually have to pay attention because uh, I think a lot of tech people don't pay attention is when I started above net and I had to figure out how to, uh, you know, I that's when I first saw a diesel generator, you know, had to learn about redundant power systems and, you know, keeping the lights on at all times. And remember, I was a software guy. I didn't know anything about that. And, uh, boy, I remember my first team at AboveNet probably was a little bit concerned by that. So, you know, my way into AboveNet was, is, you know, after my ISP space and I saw some success there, I got into, uh, 
voice over IP. So I had a company called Invoda that stood for Integrated Voice and Data. And uh, this was kind of the, uh, during the later 90s. And uh, we had done some cool things there. We were writing some APIs into the Lucent Pathstar kind of voice over IP switch, you know, really doing some of the first stuff people have ever done. And when I look back at, you know, the Skype or the Ring Central even business model, it's like, oh, that's exactly what we were doing, except for the fact we were doing it way too early. And we had problems with, you know, customers don't have brand, you know, broadband internet access, echo cancellation, you know, greater than 30 milliseconds of latency was working really lousy. So we didn't succeed in, in Invoda. So when I, uh, and this is when I moved to the Bay Area, when that company, uh, largely failed that the technology was sold off, but we didn't keep going. Um, I called uh, on someone that I was working on an open source software project with. So he was the CTO of AboveNet. And the project that he was leading that I contributed to was called MRTG. And it was kind of a, a graphing software that a lot of people use for network traffic. And so I reached out to Dave, and Dave was the CTO of AboveNet. And then before you know it, I was uh, moved up to San Jose and running at that time was San Jose Data Center Operations. And I didn't really know too much about data centers, so it was an interesting time. All right. So after spending the better part of about 15 years working for data center, not for, but uh, managing operations and engineering for, for large data center deployments, you decided to take a, a, a kind of a pivot in your career towards AI. And that's where I'd really love to focus the bulk of our conversation because it's pretty fascinating to me on numerous levels, which I know it is to you, but I'd love to know why why AI? Like why, why leave the data center world and go after the artificial intelligence marketplace? Oh, it, it's a total data center story. So let me try to connect the dots between AboveNet and then the, the biggest thing that I learned about data centers at AboveNet being a software technology person is uh, that most of the data center, particularly on the infrastructure side, is not a technology business. Uh, you know, going back to change is risk and risk is potential downtime, most of the technologies in the data center were, you know, based on 20-year-old electronics and embedded software that ran most of these sites. So I, I built a brand in, in through my data center years as being someone who would try my darndest to, to use technology approaches to make infrastructure better. And, you know, ranging from helping build out big Hadoop clusters at Yahoo or Mesos clusters at Apple or trying to build, you know, more efficient electrical or cooling systems. You know, that, that was always my goal is to, is to introduce more ag aggressive technology into infrastructure and try to match pace. You know, so when you look at the data center, you have, you know, security that's evolving daily, software stacks that are evolving monthly against a data center that stays the same for 15 years when it's built. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't comfortable with that. So, you know, through the data center career, I, tr I tried to make that my brand in the industry, and that, that's really what I was obsessed about. But uh, the best part of my data center career was was going through kind of the early cloud deployments and you know, I remember when I started in data centers, you know, servers were really seen as standalone entities. And you look at those standalone entities, and when you grow bigger, you know, you have a system administrator per couple hundred of these boxes. And then before you know it, you're running a Hadoop cluster that, you know, a handful of 
a handful of people can run, you know, a 14,000 cluster node. And so, you know, going through those eras of cloud, we really see technology as a tool to really be able to make huge impact of, of being able to, to really deliver kind of globally distributed uh, compute capabilities was really compelling. And that, that's what kind of enabled uh, the cloud to grow in those couple companies that I worked with, as well as everybody else's. And then tools like automated system resource schedulers. You know, in the early days, you'd have, you know, a single server that was, you know, had a system administrator that was running a machine that had 14%, say, average system utilization. Now we've got tools, uh, technology tools that can enable, you know, let's look at 60% or 80% utilization. But I kind of ran into a wall there. And the wall that I remember is, is, you know, we started to open data centers in faraway places outside. I used to call it the NFL cities of the internet, which would be like Northern Virginia, New York City, Seattle, you know, Silicon Valley. And when we started to build in areas like, say, whatever, Reno, Nevada, or Prineville, or Wenatchee, or Quincy, Washington, whenever we would open a site, we we'd start to encounter more people problems than we would technology problems. You know, a classic example is if you open a, you know, large scale, you know, ultra you know, high-tech data center, you know, I always said you need, uh, you need about 100 to 200 man years of, of experience to run that. You know, these are experts in facilities, electrical, mechanical, network, system, storage, uh, security, physical security. And, you know, when things were in Nebraska or upstate New York or Wenatchee, Washington, we'd just move people and, you know, we'd entice them with, you know, how about if you make a, you know, a tech worker salary in a place where, you know, costs are much lower and that worked. But as we started to grow and at Apple in particular, I was spending a lot of time in China is you start to realize, wait a second, if we want to open an ultra high tech data center, where is that 200 man years of, of expertise and experience? And by the way, we kind of also would like for them to speak English a little bit. And so the further away we started to build these data centers, we started to encounter, you know, where do we get the subject matter expertise to do that? And then with timing being everything, you know, we, we've lived a lot of years where, you know, AI, I think the term came out like 1956 uh, at this Dartmouth conference that MIT kind of led. And it's, it's largely been academic for the past 60 years. But if you look at it and you go, you know, maybe the timing's kind of good. Because by the way, I was kind of part of building this big cloud, which is, you know, globally, you know, powerful, low-cost distributed compute capabilities. And, you know, what AI kind of needs that. And the open source movement has developed all these awesome tools in data pipeline, data analytics, machine learning. And boy, with that kind of portfolio, sure does feel like the timing is right to, you know, for this AI to become a reality. And then when you look at what connects the AI to our real world, that would be the Internet of Things sensors, um, you know, low cost uh, boom that's starting to occur in regards to being able to give these AIs the senses that connect them to the real physical world so they can do meaningful things. So the Internet of Things, these are all the, the dots that connect that was like, wow. And then lastly, what if we could build an application where I could take, you know, let's just say my five best subject matter experts in all those categories that I just named and give them the ability to 
teach an AI that can be deployed anywhere in the world and use Internet of Things devices to be able to connect itself to the real location, whether it's, you know, here in the Bay Area or in, you know, Harbin, China, in the, nor- in the northern part of the country. So it, those were, you know, long story, but those are kind of the motivators that transitioned me from my first day at data center to my first day in AI, effectively. So the the marketplace of BMS systems, uh, building management systems and BAS systems that are responsible for, in theory, having the different systems within a data center speaking to one another. It doesn't have to be a data center. It can be any office building, right? Yeah. That AI can tap into the different HVAC systems, mechanical systems, um, and related infrastructure, both within the data center floor and the electrical rooms and cooling inside and outside. I, I take it you had experience playing with a lot of those different systems while you were working for Apple and Yahoo and, and AboveNet, right? A lot of experience, yeah. And what, what's really cool is is people think that this Internet of Things is, is a new thing. And, uh, you know, frankly, machines that are network connected that can interoperate and communicate amongst each other, you know, there's been a lot. You know, in the industrial space, I'd say that their weaknesses is they don't evolve uh, in a in a pace of technology. So, th- so they don't evolve as quickly as uh, security risks evolve. So, so most of those facilities you isolate the network from the world. So, they don't fully qualify, I suppose, as internet connected. But when it comes to using you know, open language protocols that are universal across all devices and allow everything to communicate. Um, you know, your Modbus and your BACnet of the world; those are, those have been around for a lot of years, and uh, those can those absolutely are big tools in in being able to allow the AI to do meaningful things. Yeah. So here here's one of my big questions that I have for you that is related to um, these BMS systems and BAS systems that have to speak across multiple facilities, let's say, around the world, right? Mm. And they may all come back to a central uh, controller that may, you know, may sit in one facility or may be distributed across multiple facilities. But if you add an AI element to it, and even if you don't have an AI element to it, is are you not presenting a serious risk of that environment being hacked in such a way that a nefarious outside third party can gain control of an entire facility and wreak havoc within that facility. Uh, yeah, that's true. So it's funny. Uh, the first thing that Litbit was exposed in the press, which and I thought it's a pretty fun exercise, is one of the things that we have to do when we're building our data pipeline is we have to be able to communicate with everything. And so being part of being able to communicate with everything, we build uh, basically network scanners to be able to pick up Modbus and BACnet devices, which, by the way, that, those are the communication protocols that power most of our uh, data centers and, and uh, such. And uh, so effectively, we built something that can really quickly scan um, the topology. And so along those lines, which you, which you, and I already knew this is, you know, your ability to communicate with those devices um, presents uh, a big opportunity as well as a big risk because most of this stuff um, is not on a pretty, a, a rapid technology innovation or improvement cycle when it comes to security risk. So what, what I did, and actually was on the cover of the, of the business section of the Wall Street Journal, 
is we used a demo data center that kind of represented what kind of most all data centers are. And I had taken some of our software and we put it on a laptop and we uh, pretended that this was an HVAC service technician's laptop. And we pretended that it was uh, you know, effectively corrupted with some, you know, malware type software that, that could do bad things. And then we pretended we were the HVAC service technician and we were plugging into the network to service some air handlers as an example. And so we played that role, we plugged it in, and this was a smaller network that it scanned. So frankly, in under one minute, uh, this laptop in the background completed a scan. It found a number of electrical mechanical devices and then it was able to start to, you know, but what were we doing? We were flickering circuit breakers to represent turning power off and on, and we were driving fan motors crazy by uh, drastically shifting uh, variable frequency drive settings uh, just to reflect that that's what these security risks can do. And that's why these inherent protocols that are built into some of this gear that runs not only our data centers, but let's look upstream to our electrical infrastructure and effectively the entire topology of our industrial world is at risk. And so, yes, they are all at risk. And then, by the way, to connect the dots and you build an AI kind of scenario, your bridge to the outside world, you, you definitely don't want to have any form of, of uh, interface using those old style languages. So you you still have to isolate yourself from the world in that regard and, and how you do that in your gateway becomes critically that much more important. And uh, kind of underlines, you know, the problem is, is when you, you have a software world that evolves weekly or, you know, monthly now at, at longest, look at the mobile world, and you have security bugs that are, you know, presenting themselves daily how do you deal with a industrial infrastructure that evolves every 15 years because you put it in and the job has been to to not change things? And uh, frankly, I think AI is, is a big part of the solution in fixing that problem because you can't put your head in the sand and isolate yourself from that problem. You actually have to be able to address that problem. And, and is, uh, is that going to involve rewriting all of the core languages and the, the backbone languages that the different pieces of infrastructure communicate within, or can you work around that in some way? No, the, so the simplest way you have to work around with it because when you, you know, this is many millions of dollars a year. And when people are installed, it, you're not going to rip it out and replace it. Um, but, but remember you have to think of it really simply and the, the, the real simple way, and I'm looking across my, my room here in my conference room, is I'm looking at the light switch. Light switches, you know, if you have access to that light switch, there's less security than Modbus or BACnet because you just fl physically flip the switch. And, you know, it's how you isolate problems, people, or bad guys from that light switch is really the answer. It's not you know, let's replace every light switch to avoid someone from turning our lights off. So so I would say, you know, isolation has been the historical approach um, to things. Uh, and, and by the way, traditionally, you isolate the entire network. Um, and I would say that isolation is always uh, a solution for a long time going forward. It's just what technology, aside from you know, a pair of scissors are you using to isolate something from the rest of the world? So you you briefly mentioned, and we briefly mentioned Litbit. 
Um, but for those who, who are tuning in that have never heard of Lipbit or don't know what Lipbit is, what, what is Lipbit? Yeah, so most of our early customers, the easiest way that they describe it is, is oh, this lets me create a Siri or an Alexa, but based on my own expertise. And what's funny, and you learn, and what I've learned is, is you know, most people have no idea what AI is. So the easiest thing that they connect to AI is, oh, it's something smart like Siri or Alexa. And so that's the way most people that have been using Litbit so far think of it. And you know, to go back to the data center space to accomplish the goal of how do I take those five experts that are experts in these varying silos, give them a real easy way to teach the AI. So effectively they get to create their own kind of Siri or Alexa. They get to name it, whatever they want to name it. They get to mentor it or teach it the things that they know as individual subject matter expertise. And then they get to manage it. And the way that they interact with their AI is the most important because most of these people, you know, think of your, you know, let's go back to data centers, your electrical, mechanical, or even like a pharmaceutical scientist, which are people that we work with. They're not programmers. They don't speak in code or programming code. Uh, they uh, are not data scientists. Um, many people may or may not know how to spell algorithm, but they, but they definitely don't work in that space. So the way that you interface with your AI has to be using natural language. And then once you do, you know, something we've learned over the past couple of months is, and we've done it right, is by forming your natural language interface properly to your AI, then making your AI multilingual becomes a heck of a lot easier. So it goes back to the original problem that I had in the data centers is, you know, if I'm Scott and I'm working with you know, DAC, a data center AI uh, in here in the U.S., I can interface with DAC using the, you know, the English language. And then at the same time, if I'm in Harbin, China, I could be interfacing with DAC using the Mandarin language. And if DAC needed to do work in Germany, um, effectively, DAC could be empowered with a natural language file in German so that someone in Germany can interface with DAC using German. You know, those are all kind of fun lessons. But the bottom line is, is you need to allow people to interface with their AI coworkers, as we call it, just like they interface with their coworkers now. So the more we can make this humanistic and, you know, kind of intuitive and a human perspective, the better. So to the degree that Litbit is leveraging this DAC, D, it's D-A-C, correct? Yeah. Um, yeah. Within within the data center environment, how what is DAC doing that's different than a typical BMS solution? Or how is it augmenting the BMS solution? Well, so I would say it's definitely an augment scenario. So if you, generally, if you look at BMS, BMS and say BAS or building automation systems are really strong in a couple areas. Number one, they're good in, in pre-programmed sequence of operations. Uh, classic example, and generally they remain the same for many that run their data centers, is you program your, you know, your BMS, BAS, how to run the, the data center, you know, when you commission the site and you test it as part of integrated system testing, and then the next 15 years you run the site, you, you generally, most people have this static kind of sequence of operation uh, running things. And then the interface to people 
in these systems is, is, you know, I'm going to show my facilities team whatever data they need to know so that the facilities team can ingest and analyze the data uh, and make a decision. And, uh, you know, we're going to give them a, a nice single pane of glass. And then you look at that scenario and you go, well, what if you want things to change over 15 years relative to sequence of operation? What if there's so much data now because these data centers have gotten bigger and more data re- data rich that this kind of single pane of glass has become kind of the, the single glass of pain? And what if people just can't calculate or comprehend so much data now because it's become overwhelming? And that's where the AI can kind of complement things of, you know, asking an AI to analyze, you know, hundreds of thousands of pieces of data a second isn't unusual. Uh, giving the AI supervised learning so it can process its own thoughts, you know, uh, teaching the AI what things look like, what they sound like, what they feel like. These were things that traditional systems really couldn't comprehend. They could never, they're, they're only able to process math, not really process actual thoughts or form thoughts. And then learning to turn those thoughts into actions. That's what the AI can kind of do. And then, then not only that, but also combine what you teach the AI with this continuous stream of the example, hundreds of thousands of pieces of data per second. So then it can go in the kind of the category of unsupervised learning and be able to recommend changes and, and perfect learning of lessons uh, much faster than the original lessons we as people have ever taught it. So really turning machines from being tools um, to being kind of conscious uh, teammates um, is the real shift between, you know, the traditional world and kind of the AI-empowered world. It's, uh, that's, that's the big shift, uh, you know, going back to your Hadoop and your Mesos. Those are, those are tools, but at the end of the day, tools are just like paintbrushes or, you know, uh, Tools need hands. Tools are like a guitar. The tools are nothing without the, the musician operating them. Where now when, when the technology becomes a teammate, it's able to do and process those thoughts and make those actions themselves uh, and thus needs less hands or hands can be better focused doing other things. You know, those are some of the differences kind of between using technology as a tool versus a kind of a conscious teammate. So you have a great post that I read last week called The Real Walking Dead, Surviving the Software-Defined Zombie Apocalypse that I think is a, it's a fun read for anyone who wants to check that out on LinkedIn or on the LitBit blog. Um, and it speaks to kind of what the some of the ramifications are of everything becoming software-defined and the Internet of Things. Um, and it's, I think it's a real, it's a real question that I want to throw at you that has to do with the evolution of AI that you're now on the forefront of and, and advocating yep. for, right? Um, you know, what checks and balances or in or controls can be put in place for an AI, something like, you know, Asimov's law of robotics that will prevent the Terminator Skynet scenario where you know, the, the AI becomes self-aware and realizes that mankind is the threat to, to its own continents and decides to turn against its creator. Yep. So I think, and I want to play with you on this one a little bit, kind of go back and forth, but you know, the first thing that people can do is, is very simply 
this technology is coming? Do you hide from it or do you embrace it? And then if you embrace it, do you understand it? And then when you understand it, usually what I like to do is, and most people think I'm crazy on this one, is there's a heck of a lot of similarities with people and AI, and there's a heck of a lot of similarities between broad nature and AI, some of which are completely different uh, from people and nature. So usually the first thing that I do is, is let's teach people what AI represents. So first of all, AI represents you know, there's two halves of our mind and the right half of the mind, which is kind of neural processing, effectively your your thinking capability. Uh, the AIs are really, really good at that. And quite frankly, they're going to augment our own processing capability greatly over time. And if done well, can can do really good things. What the AIs are not good at is what makes us special as human. Effectively, people would call it a soul our ingenuity, our creativity, kind of the, uh, the and I may have mixed the, the right brain side of things versus the left brain, which is the, which is the computational, neurocomputational or cortex thinking side of things. So what you find in the AI is AIs are very good at processing thoughts uh, that are computational in nature, are not very good at being creative, are not very good at having any form of ingenuity. And then frankly, they don't, possess what's called the limbic system, which is uh, effectively the emotional processor that we all have as people. So what happens is, is when a person calculates a problem and then he expresses that problem or that thought to the world, it goes through this limbic system, which adds emotion to things. And humans are special and, and mammals are generally special that we have that system. The AI doesn't have it. So you know, you have to understand some of the distinct differences, which, by the way, what makes us special as humans, the AIs are really lousy. The AIs can actually augment the areas that, that I think uh, are more commodity that, that the AI can be good at. So, you know, understanding, you know, what the AI can and can't do is really important. And also that understands kind of its strengths and weaknesses against people. The other thing, you know, aside from those differences, and, and let's play along with this. So, so what I want you to do is uh, play along with me. Close your eyes. As you're closed. So as your eyes are as your eyes are closed, I want you to picture the person in life that loves you the most, and I want you to imagine that person saying your name. And then I want you to, and if you're extra kind of uh, dependent, this will depend on people. I want you to imagine that person touching your face. And then I want you to shift gears in your head. And I want you to calculate 113 plus 67. And pay attention to how that happens in your head. And then before we kind of revisit that, I want you to open your eyes. And by the way, let's go backwards for a second. When you open your eyes and you just saw everything, and as a matter of fact, when you're hearing my voice, that rush of light that came in your eyes where you just saw everything when you open your eyes, think of that like the, your eyes as the uh, Internet of Things. Your eyes and your ears and your taste, uh, those, are, those are effectively sensors. Your eyeballs are sensors. And it's your brain's ability to process those sensors and give them perception. That's what the AI does. 
But let me ask the question. So when your eyes were closed and you were imagining the person that uh, that uh, you love the most and they say your name, um, could you see that person in your head? Yes, definitely. Can you hear their voice in your head? Yes, definitely. So one of the most common things that I get in AI is people say, well, how a how can AI be valuable in the real physical world because an AI just works in this virtual world. So let me ask the question, where your mind was operating right there in your head where you're imagining that person and hearing their voice. And by the way, when you did the math problem, my guess is, is when you think through the math problem, you probably hear your own voice in your head. Is that the physical world or the virtual world? I love where you're going with that question. It's, it's you know, I don't know what world that is, right? <laughs> so I suggest that, so by the way, that is in a world where your neurons are processing thing and it very much is an electrical-based world. And that world is the same world that AI works in. We're different in many ways, and we talked about some of those differences, but that's the exact same world. And then when I had you open your eyes, and all of a sudden, you could see things, and all of a sudden, you know, you could always hear things. But imagine if I removed all your senses. Isn't it your human senses that allow you to connect to the physical world? Because otherwise, your mind would just be in the virtual world, right? So that's what senses do, and that's why the Internet of Things is really important to AI, because it is those same senses that connect us to the... Because, by the way, if we had zero senses, our minds would just be in a virtual world. We would not be able to connect or relate to the physical world that we're in without our senses. This is the same thing that connects the AI to the physical world. And this is what allows the AI to be productive and relate to this physical world that we live in. And there is very much similarities to that. And, you know, some of the differences are not unnature-like. So if you look at an AI and, you know, it's the Terminator fear, and you say, well, the AI doesn't have any emotions. That's true. The AI doesn't possess a limbic system. But neither does a shark. Neither does actually most of the animals on the planet in nature. Does nature itself, when it sends a storm, does it, does it have an emotional system? Does Mother Nature have an emotional system? Does a storm system have an emotional system? Does a shark have an emotional system? Does an ant? And most of nature doesn't possess that. That's something that makes us really special as humans. Yet at the same time, we as humans, using our ingenuity and our creativity, are able to work in this world where we have a bunch of things that don't have emotions, a bunch of things that are smart, a bunch of things that are powerful. And we have to get all of those things to work together. And that kind of, I, I go through those exercises because it's really important for people to understand the great similarities and the great differences of AI. And it's thinking that way that we will think, how do we get this to help us to help people become augmented and better, to then help the world become a, a, a better place. Um, that's really the task. And those are the exercises, is the exercises of the good that will overwhelm all the downfall of the exercises of the bad, which, which AI also represents, you know, a, a tool. You know, a knife is one of the greatest tools. A knife is one of the most dangerous tools uh, at the end of the day. 
it's more good than bad because more people, more good people use it. It's the same thing with AI. Well, that was that was a great exercise to uh, kind of understand the the limitations and potentiality of AI. So with with someone like um, oh man, I'm forgetting his name the 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 CEO of Tesla, Elon Musk. Elon Musk. So Elon Musk, uh, I've heard him speak a couple times about how he believes that uh, computers and and humans need to start m- merging capabilities. Uh, sooner rather than later, and where it's going to be happening sooner rather than later. What? How does that play into the conversation? Like, are we going to have augmented brains that are going to leverage some form of, uh, you know, data storage and and um, capabilities in the near future, or is that just kind of a, a pipe dream that uh, sounds good for marketing um, and PR stories, but you know, realistically? No, I think it's so. I think it's totally possible, and you know, he's working on a couple. Like he's got a startup company. That's I forget the name is working in the space. So it's funny when um, I was at Apple, someone had asked me what was, and this was like 2013, and what is the greatest innovation of the year? And they expected me to say something in like internet related, and I said it was in brain-to-brain networking. And so in 2013, the scientists had successfully kind of, let's say, brain, you know, was able to wire with physical wire, your brain and my brain together. And let's say that, and and they don't even understand the full details behind how this happens yet. But let's say that you are really good at Sudoku puzzles, and I'm really lousy at Sudoku puzzles. When our brains are wired together in a particular way, I uh, automatically become pretty darn good and significantly better at Sudoku puzzles. Um, And so, they're they're starting to show some reality and you know the fact that communication can happen via other means than written or verbal or you know the our standard forms of communication so i would say in human to human science that's proving itself uh to show some interesting signs i'll say we we don't know a lot uh, now, on the human to, uh, as I call the human to machine learning interface that we work on, what's the path look like there? Well, right now, um, it's largely text-based. Uh, so you kind of uh, effectively think of it, uh, you type to your AI. Um, you, we're starting to use voice. Uh, so, you know, plugins with Alexa and such, you can start to use voice to interface with your AI. Uh, the AIs that we've created very soon will have their own unique voice fingerprint. So therefore, when you hear your AI speak to you, you'll know whether it's DAC or Sophia or Viv or you know any number of these AIs that may be working for you or with you. So voice is going to become key. And yeah, I think the, the big opportunity of being able to interface and communicate with each other as people, as well as with technology, I think there's some interesting, that's going to go an interesting path. And I, I'm actually a believer in that path. My my belief is, is, is to go back to the similarities between machines and humans and the fact that, you know, neural processing and, and thoughts, you know, move over nerves and electrical waves. Um, you start to look and go, wow, if, if you increase the energy and you uh, change the frequency of those waves, could those waves be uh, wireless? 
And then you go, well, there's a lot of, like, the, people explain the, the enlightened Buddhists that are measurably able to operate in different frequency ranges of thought as being able to glow or their energy starts to uh, go outside of their body. Um, are those early exercises that have occurred for thousands of years uh, that perhaps suggest that wireless communication should be key? You know, so not to get, you know, too, you know, creepy on things or weird, but those are all interesting areas that I think will prove or disprove through science over the coming years. I, I, I think there's something there. I do too, man. Um, the, I've been following just the laws of energetics, both from physiological and um, uh, a global phenomenon for the last 10, 15 years of my life, uh, living up in the Santa Cruz mountains for, for the time that I did. I met some very interesting people that, started um, an organization called HeartMath that I don't know if you've heard of, but you probably would appreciate. It's the study of the heart and the energetics of the heart and how that affects the physiology of the body and brain waves and, and whatnot. Um, but to that end, it you know how it is that human beings can um, come together in um, spiritual settings um, and be able to tap into each other's memories or go into, you know, lucid dream states collectively yep. and come out of it and, and share those experiences. And, yep. um, as if they were all there seeing the same thing and talk, telling the same story. And yet, you know, to, to the question that you had, you know, where did that occur? Right? Like <laughs> how did that occur and where did that occur? It's pretty fascinating stuff. And I think the more, uh, we focus study around those types of questions and those realities. Um, we'll see some some advances that are beyond what we've seen occur in the last couple hundred years alone. Um, so it's it, it's a, it's a fun conversation to have, um, and just fun to see the advances occurring. So let me digress. So um, with Litbit specifically. If people want to get a hold of Lipit or they want to learn more about Lipit and how what you're working on could be beneficial to what they have going on as an organization, where where can they go and what would be a good um, you know starter use case for people to start to wrap their head around how and where to engage with with you and your firm? Yeah, so where we're at as a company right now is we're still pretty darn small. We've been spending the past couple of years working on pretty darn complex technology. Um, and really the, the stage where we're at as a company right now is we've identified six uh, distinct silos because one of the things we're trying to prove out and we're seeing some success in it is this AI platform itself can be very horizontal in nature and it becomes very vertical in nature depending on what you teach the AI. So like a classic example is that I had personal passion in DAC because it's data center related and I, I know some data center related stuff. So DAC is actually one of the few AI areas that I can provide personal value in doing some training. And so a DAC can provide very specific subject matter expertise in a data center vertical, which is, which is one of the verticals that we're, we're doing some things in. And then we have a couple of AIs, Viv and, and Jax, that are working in the science vertical, um, you know, helping run some, you know, scientific laboratories that research, you know, that uh, 
you know, are helping in cancer research as an example. So science is one of those silos that we have AI. We have a new AI we're going to be doing that's based in the construction space, and it, it involves kind of OSHA competence or safety, uh, construction safety site management, and that AI's name is Sophia. Again, a distinct silo. Uh, we're doing things in the healthcare space. We're doing things in the real estate or corporate headquarters space. So right now we have use cases um, and deployments across the horizontal that then we see these vertical AI personas. And let's say DAC as an example. We see DAC as an application of the future where if you need expertise in data centers, you can subscribe to DAC for, for what you need DAC to do in data centers, or you can sub subscribe to Sophia. And by the, by, by, uh, by apps, what I mean is, 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 let's talk about different options. So say that DAC in the data center is an open source AI persona, kind of like a free app on your phone that the community takes responsibility for training and, and effectively what we call mentoring or make, making them smarter. That's an example of a open source persona. Or say like the, you're an industrial company, which we're working with a couple of the biggest, uh, and you're building an AI persona that helps you understand all of your million machines that are in production and, and puts that knowledge in the pockets, the back pockets of your 3,000 service technicians around the globe. That AI is a private uh, AI because it's it's proprietary data that the company only wants to hold for themselves and not share. That would be a private app that's only available to them. Or let's say that there's an app like the Sophia app that helps construction sites uh, be OSHA competent, which then kind of pays for itself because of decreased insurance premiums. That's an app or an AI persona that could be available to work for you for a low amount of you know dollars per month. Um, those are all the different scenarios or personas that get very vertical in nature. And again, to connect the AI world back to our human world, those are just skill sets like people have skill sets and they work for anywhere for they volunteer for free to their more expensive. Um, and these are AIs that, you know, can work in faraway places that, you know, skill sets don't exist or do work that's dangerous that people shouldn't be doing or people don't want to do or working, you know, uh, you know, the graveyard shift or weekend so that my AI personas that I manage can be doing work and spending more hours working so I can spend more hours with my family. That's, you know, that's, uh, you know, where those directions kind of go. And to answer your question, if people are involved, interested in getting involved in this, um, we have not broadly brought the product to market yet, but we definitely in those six silos are have pretty notable customers in each, and you know they can go to our website and reach out. Yeah, man. And then how about for you personally, if people want to connect with you somewhere, how do they find you? Oh, so you can reach out to me via email. You can reach out, you know, the traditional ways. Um, you know, I use social media as well. So any of the kind of ways of reaching out to me on social media, probably in a professional context, LinkedIn would be best. Um, but I'm on, you know, all forms of social media as is the company and, uh, or reach out to me directly. Most of the, you know, meaningful connections have come from, you know, being out at a conference and talking to people and getting, you know, it's, it's interesting how a lot of connections in the world you get into all the high tech social media, but a lot of those physical connections have, have produced some of the most meaningful results and influence even on what we're doing. So, uh, 
physically come see as well. And you're you're at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Scott Noteboom, N-O-T-E-B-O-O-M for any listeners who are, are trying to find them. We'll also have some of this in the, in the show notes. For those who um, who can check us out online at ilovedatacenters.com. So a couple final questions for you, Scott, before yeah. um, we... we conclude the the interview what do you have currently as the backdrop to your laptop so the answer is i have the most interesting question in the world it is the mountaintop that is stock that comes with my mac computer and what's interesting and i'm now looking at my applications and i would tell you i'm not even sure the last time that i've been fully on that full desktop screen because i've had the same applications open for so darn long Huh. That's funny, man. I, over half the people I've interviewed say that they have the stock stock image on their backdrop, which no, I never. No, and like, yeah. So like Chrome, when I open, I do have some plugin that la- that loads like some random, you know, photography off of you know somewhere. So I get something unique that that is unplanned, but. Yeah, and and what's interesting is is I used to always do like, oh, let's do some kind of like fun travel friends. I'm into cars or family kind of photos. But I think what's what's changed is just simply the fact that I'm not on my desktop that very much anymore. Because you know, you get to you used to be so much like I boot my computer to my desktop and that's where I start every day and then everything is revolves around kind of a you know, the the start button on the main screen. And I, and I look at things and I'm like, well, my Mac runs all times. I very rarely reboot it. I'm v- actually very rarely on the screen that you're mentioning. Uh, today, I'll probably never be on it. That's interesting. So one of the other questions I have for you is what is one of the pieces of advice that you would give someone who's kind of new into the world of, of either data centers or IT in general or, or AI? Um, you know, if you could maybe not go back to your own 20, 22, 25 year old self, but uh, speaking to someone who is 22, 25, who's looking to get into yeah. that industry, what, what advice would you give them? So the advice that I would give them and also give myself if I was go, if I was to go back in time is what you really learn over time is your ability to communicate and work with people is so much more impactful and so much more powerful than what you can do as an individual and, you know, especially for people who come from a tech background and and uh, even, quote unquote, a lot of the innovators out there is you can do a heck of a lot on your own, in your own individual ego. You can seed that and everything. But the reality is, is you really can't do shit without a team of people that will accept your idea, a team of people that are there to work with you, a team of people who are in the trenches when you're in battle uh, to help you get through things. And really what I learned over time is, is is a lot of my early career was just trying to make so much individual, overwhelming individual impact and, and not thinking as much of how much more impactful that impact could be if I could work better with people. And so, you know, again, it's the adage that people are much more important than, than individual efforts. How about how about something that you believe to be true that you think other people might think that you're a little off your rocker about? Oh, we went through it. So that exercise that I talk that I uh, take you through, and and I don't do it for very many people because they'll they'll think I only do it when I need to, I suppose. But those connections of 
the fact that everything in this planet works over energy and the fact that as a technologist, I believe that going back in time and, and studying uh, history, studying the commonalities and the differences of various religions and the spiritual mindset, I suppose, holds so much, so much of you can unlock in, you know, that are, that's applicable to the traditional technology world is, is really important. And, and that's where I think that the spiritual being and science will connect over time. Uh, most people will think that's crazy. So, you know, even the exercise of trying to show similarities be, between the virtual world and the, and the physical world, just through that exercise in your mind. Um, those are you know, a couple of fun things. Glad to hear that, man, because there's very few who are of similar ilk and mindset, but, uh, if you're down to continue along that conversation, I'm happy to to sit down uh, and and continue that conversation with you because I think there's some fun yeah. stories we could probably well, tell. And well, it sounds like you go to like the the Santa Cruz Mountains and you learn from the hippies up there. So uh, <laughs> I think I think you can see some of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the last question I have for you: um, what what is something that you think is a common misnomer? or something that's misunderstood about the world that we live in or, or the industries that we serve? So I'll specifically stick to that because this is data center and kind of technology related. I think what most people don't understand, and I think people will begin to understand, and, and what concerns me is you know, what, what kind of situation will require it to be broadly understood is when we connect all of these things and we connect all of this world, the, the fine line between how important your privacy is or data privacy for a period of time, I think that that's really important. I think a lot of people underestimate or don't understand how important that is. And it, it's interesting. I was just in Mexico recently and I got to meet with you know, the, the son of Carlos Slim, who's running Telmex and Telefonica and a bunch of the big uh, companies there. And uh, they are starting to think more and more of, hey, this, you know, I, we think we want more of our citizens' private data within our own country because it's a, it's a national security risk. You know, so when you think about like security risks um, around your data and, and around the machines that you interact with every day, I think that the world needs to become more aware of the ramifications of that, hopefully without a, you know, equivalent of a cyber 9-11 or something crazy that forces us all to learn very quickly. Yeah. And that's, that's probably another hour long interview that we could, yeah. we could dig into that topic in the rent, you know, specifically the ramifications and how do you go about having something like the internet of things that has in, in mining the valuable data from that and yet also maintain some form of privacy within the digital world, brave new digital world that we live in today, right? Yeah, and that's really seems... important why why the cloud shouldn't always be somewhere else. The cloud needs to be everywhere. And the classic example is, is if I have a bunch of machines that are processing massive amounts of data, do I want my AI that that analyzes all that data to be somewhere far away in an invisible place I call the cloud, or do I want it to all happen here in this room so the data doesn't have to go anywhere? You know, those all become really important issues and effectively, uh, you know, really expands the, the breadth of what this cloud is and even removes the differences between the cloud and the edge. Well, Scott, this has been a fun conversation that I'm sure we will continue at a later date. Um, I will leave you with one, one final, 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 final question, which is do you 
love data centers? Do I love data centers? No, I don't love data centers. <laughs> data centers are just a physical machine um, that are that have no emotion to love me, so therefore I don't love them. I have uh, passion for them, but I I hold that word love for for. Uh, Remember, I work in AI, and when you work in AI, you learn the importance and the and really where people stand out. And you know, I hold love for for people. That's that's a very unique response and a appreciated and respected response. That being said, I still do love data centers because it connects <laughs> me with people like you and the industry of thought leaders and just experienced people who. I think get things at a at a deeper level than I can't say all other industries, but a lot of other industries that I've been involved with. So for that for that reason, I do love data centers and I, I appreciate you taking the time, Scott, to to chat with me today and uh hopefully we'll we'll hear from you again soon. Awesome. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon. 